Today we're joined by a number of uh, respiratory patients from around the globe and we're discussing how COVID-19 is impacting our lives and our community and our country. And I thought this would be a good way of getting different ideas and sharing advice so hopefully other patients can navigate their way through these times a little bit more safely and maybe with a little bit more peace in their mind. Uh, so first off the bat, we have um, from Dallas is Bill Vick. Bill, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Russell. Yeah, I'm an IPF patient. I was diagnosed nine years ago, so I'm nine years post. Uh, I am doing uh, unusually well for an IPF patient. I uh, was a triathlete. That's how I became aware of the fact that I had something happening. Uh, since that time, I don't know. I no longer run or swim, but I'm a pretty pretty mean race walker. So I do a lot of uh, race walking. Uh, try to exercise every day, like many of us do. I try to eat right. And that's a moving target, I think, for most of us. And think right. I do a lot of other exercises. I do meditation every morning. I do a, a Chinese exercise, kind of looks like Tai Chi, called Qi Kong. I've been doing that for years. I do that every morning with my wife, Patty. Uh, I'm also a support group leader in Dallas. We have a support group that now encompasses 2,000 people worldwide, including Wickerham in the UK, Carol. And uh, our network is, uh, is large. I think we have 60 members in the UK, as an example. I think we're now at 20 in Australia. Uh, we have 400 in the Dallas Metroplex, as an example, and our mission is to not talk about the what's in this disease, but talk about the hows, how to live with it, how to get oxygen, how to negotiate insurance, how to eat right, how to think right, how to move right, all of the hows, and that's our mission. We have two meetings a month to do that. We have one that's a physical meeting, when we can have a physical meeting. The other is a virtual meeting. So we've been doing now two virtual meetings a month. We just had one last Thursday. We had uh, 68 of our members here locally attend. It was talking about pulmonary rehabilitation at home, uh, conducted by a pulmonology, uh, excuse me, a, a pulmonary res uh, registered pulmonary uh, technician uh, named uh, David Younger. And uh, so David gave a, a, an hour long presentation. We have two meetings like that each month and we address it worldwide and this meeting as an example of the 68 people two were from the uk carol and i have to mention that only because i i'm a i'm an anglophile i i love i love england i really do i love the country and the people and all of it so so that's me very simply thanks bill and quickly just um how can people find out the organization you're involved with if they need support if they Google me, they'll, they'll know more than they ever cared to know. So, <laughs> but uh, our website is pfwarrior.com, and that site's going through a, a relaunch in May in two weeks. It's been enhanced significantly. We're very active on Facebook. We have two groups, a page and a private group. Our page is facebook.com slash pfwarrior. It has about 3,500 members. Our private group is a private group you have to access by qualifying as a patient or a caregiver or a family member. And that group has about 3,000 members. So we have about 65 members on Facebook. We have 2,000 members on our website. 
and we're growing that actively and aggressively. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, next we have Mary Kitlowski. I hope I've got that right, Mary. Welcome, and can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Russell, you just say it right, uh, Kitlowski. And uh, so I'm, uh, I have a rare lung disease called primary ciliary dyskinesia, PCD for short. And there's about 2,000 confirmed cases in North America. So that gives you an idea of how small it is. However, uh, the thought is based on the genetics that there could be upwards of 25,000 to 30,000 people in North America that actually have it and just haven't been diagnosed with it. And uh, so it's a genetic disorder. They've discovered I, there are up to like 44 genes that can create issues with the cilia in the lungs. And um, we're prone to, so, so at, you know, by the time we're teenagers, most of us have um, developed bronchiectasis. And I know that's a secondary disease a lot of us share. And um, so, in 2014, when I started Oxygen, uh, it was so hard to find something that would allow me to still be active. Um, I didn't feel a home unit that I had to roll along behind me as I tried to run around the neighborhood would uh, meet my needs. <laughs> so um, I started uh, running on air, which is, I started to try to help people who are going on oxygen and other lung diseases and to just raise awareness about the issues and the struggles that we all go through in trying to just, you know, continue with our daily lives. And part of how I do that is doing races around the, around the United States. That's where I'm from. Uh, although I have done one international race uh, in Canada. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, and uh, so my biggest accomplishment to date was the uh, New York Marathon last November. And did that carrying my portable oxygen concentrator the whole way. And my husband helped, was with me. He walked it with me and uh, carried my extra uh, concentrator batteries to get, help get me through it. So I guess that's sort of in a nutshell. Well, wow, that's that's pretty impressive, Mary. Um, as you know, I've been an avid fan of yours for quite a while. Can you tell our audience uh, how they can find you and what you're doing uh, as far as running on air? Sure. Um, so they can. We have a <clears throat> website, so runningonair.org, and also on Facebook. Um, I'd. <laughs> I'd if you if you type in running on air, uh, it, it'll um, you'll find you'll everything. Be able to find us, but on Instagram and Twitter also. And um, yeah, I mean the main goal. So I still have a full time job, so I'm not I don't have all you know as much time as I'd like to focus on uh, running on air. But our main goals are raising awareness um, and working and raising money for different organizations that help 
that help patients too. And one of the things I really want to, I've been working on and, and I want to get out is a brochure in doctor's offices for patients who might be starting on oxygen to just, you know, give them insight on what to look, you know, what to consider and the research to do ahead of time. Uh, Cause in the U S you can unfortunately uh, get locked into systems or if you're not aware, you may pay for a system that does not meet your needs. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so, so that, that's one of my more immediate goals. Thanks Mary. And, now from uh, Chicago, I think, or around that area, we have John Linnell, who I'm sure will share a little joke with us as well, because he's got plenty of them. Welcome, John. Thanks, Russ. Uh, I'm John Linnell, and I, I'm from near Chicago. I live in uh, Viroqua, Wisconsin, which is probably halfway between Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Chicago, Illinois, for those not familiar with uh, the entire United States. I'm a COPD patient, and I'm, I'm stage four, and I don't ne- have nearly the, uh, the, the wonderful attributes that uh, the previous speakers had. I, I haven't run in marathons, and I, I don't uh, host groups with over 3,000 members, but I I do what I can, and basically my, my story is that when I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. No one handed me COPD 101 for dummies, and here's what you do. So I had to figure out all on my own, how, how do I find medical attention? How do I apply for disability? How do I find peers? How do I find other people in in my own situation that I can talk to? How do I do any of this? And on my own, I had to figure out about pharmaceutical uh, uh, patient assistance programs. I had to find out on my own that the American Lung Association has better breathers groups where I could meet with other people with my condition and I had to figure all of this out all on my own and it was very confusing and frustrating to me yet I I had no choice but to do it and I was approached to participate in a uh, a, a video I I don't know a video redo of a website for uh, a certain pharmaceutical company, and uh, actually Karen Deidemeyer, who you hear from shortly, was also involved in. And I, I realized that we can do this. We can do this together. And I realized that I'm not on my own. We need to work together to do this, to find out. I, I'm probably not saying it right, but there's strength in numbers, and if it's without us, it's not about us. And I got that phrase from John Walsh, who founded the COPD Foundation, who I considered a dear friend of mine 
and unfortunately he's passed, but it just, it, it goes to show that we can work together and we need to work together to find the answers. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but anyway, I, I've become very involved in many programs. You have. I think you're, you're a very uh, familiar face in the uh, respiratory sphere. And I, I love the jokes you come up with uh, every now and again. It brightens up my day, that's for sure. <laughs> so next uh, we have from Florida, one of my favourite places, Karen, and I will get this wrong, Detemeyer? Datemeyer. Datemeyer. It's good to see everybody. And Russell was actually here in my home with his wife. What was that, three years ago, I guess? I Five. I can't remember. Five? Oh my God! Well, you got to come back. I agree. Um, I'll, I'll tell you all a funny. I served them coffee and I don't know cookies or something. I had no idea they owned a chain of coffee shops, <laughs> and here I was serving them what Maxwell House or something. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh! It was beautiful. But, but anyway, yeah. Um, I was diagnosed officially in 2001 with severe stage four COPD. I have stayed basically the same for the last 19, 20 years. Um, I will be honest. I do not exercise the way I should, the way I know I should. I hate exercise. I've always hated it. I'm active. I don't just sit on my couch and watch daytime TV because I can't stand daytime TV. So I'm, I'm moving a lot, but I'm definitely not doing what I know I should do. Um, I am quite active with uh, the American Lung Association. I'm on their national patient advisory group. The COPD Foundation, I'm a state captain for Florida, as John is for Wisconsin. Um, he and I are both on the board of the US COPD Coalition and both on the board of EFFORTS, which is a listserv. Now EFFORTS, when I was diagnosed in 2001, I, I Googled, I didn't know anything about COPD and I Googled and EFFORTS popped up and it's a list serve and it's been around for a long time and most of everything that i learned about living with copd i learned from the people who would post and answer questions and you know gradually over the years there have been facebook groups noah greenspan has a group mike hess has a group there's many many groups but they didn't exist back then um, better breathers. I, I have attended better breathers. I was fortunate enough to go through pulmonary rehab. I retired in 2008. So it was right before a couple of years before I retired because my boss didn't like me having to take off work to go for pulmonary rehab. Um, I was very fortunate that I could go and that I did go. I learned a lot. I retired because I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008 and I said, ah, you know, that's just too much to deal with. 
So I, I retired. I was old enough I could go ahead. And I've been very fortunate. I've been very, very busy, very involved, and met a lot of wonderful people. You know, and John and I serve together on a lot of these boards. We're forever bumping into each other. So that's me. I've got, well, I've got two cats who may or may not run up that cat tree. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Um, and you have certainly been a great support from for me since um, I was diagnosed back in 2011. And, and yes, efforts was certainly... Uh, one resource back then that was um, very useful um, to learn about your disease, absolutely. Last but not least, all the way from the United Kingdom, uh, we have my singing buddy, <laughs> Carol Little. Hey, Carol. Um, oh, gosh. COPD really has always stalked me. Um, my grandfather was in an iron lung. He had COPD. My mother had COPD and she died when I was 30. Uh, so when I started getting symptoms, I knew I had it, but I put it off for ooh, about five years. I was still able to climb a little bit, walk in the mountains, which I loved. Um, so I was quite late going to the doctor, but I was um, severe, borderline, very severe when I actually went to the doctors. And I was lucky I got on a pulmonary rehabilitation course straight away which I knew I needed. Um, but I hate exercise. I do what I need to do. I'm very active. I look after my husband. I'm a carer for him. He's up and down because he has epilepsy and still has the remnants of a head injury that he had 12 years ago. So sometimes he can lose all his motion and he can't walk. Um, very strange, but there it is. We just get on with it, really. Um, so for me, I was very isolated anyway. And the only thing I really enjoyed doing was singing. So my daughter and I put together our little singing group for a, a while. And then my daughter went on and qualified as a singing instructor, doing it for the British Lung Foundation. And I've carried on doing my advocacy work. Um, I'm now on the UK National Audit COPD um, an asthma board, which is research uh, that entails all sorts of meetings, London, Liverpool University, here, there and everywhere. I'm on some research projects with um, some of the ERS and ER, um, all the respiratory people at Wigmanshaw Hospital in Manchester under Professor Vestibo. Um, I've got myself appointed onto the um, COPD board um, advising government with the British Lung Foundation on the task force that we've put together because lung conditions have been ignored in this country for 30 years and we're looking to change that and expand probably rehabilitation, try and get rid of the stigmas, Russell. Uh, apart from that, I'm just a COPD patient, really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you'll never be accused of just being a COPD patient, Carol. You have so much more. <laughs> well, thank you all for, for giving us a, an outline of your disease um, and how you got to this point of your, your life, I guess.
I'm going to go back to Bill uh, and about our discussion today in COVID-19. I guess, Bill, from your point of view, in your community, with not only your disease community, but where you live, how's COVID-19 affecting you and what are you doing to stay safe? I, I think I'm, I'm probably representative of many people living with interstitial lung disease or, or and there's a huge difference here because I'm listening to all of you and I understand we're all living with terrible lung diseases. I understand that. Uh, however, I forget, I think it was John, you mentioned 11 or 12 years and someone else said 19 years. For, for us in the PF community, three years are typically our maximum shelf life. Uh, we die within three to five years. And that's overall, very few make it beyond that. So I'm, I'm a true anomaly in being active and alive and doing what I'm doing at nine years. So I'm hypersensitive to COVID as most of our community is. And the numbers, which are kind of harsh, my understanding is that the average person has about a 98% survival rate from getting uh, COVID-19. Uh, PF patients have a 98% death rate. So if we get it, we're all but given a guarantee of death. There's no second bounce back and there's no alternative. So we're, we're hypersensitive, uh, masking up, uh, being isolated, washing, our hands are all getting chapped like I'm, I'm sure yours are too. You know, how, how often you wash every day? So we wash our hands a lot. We try to do all the things you're supposed to do. Try to eat right, try to eat wisely for autoimmune responses as well as uh, is trying to offset any uh, any viruses or bacteria we come in contact with. And this has just crystallized, I think, that thinking. Uh, my day typically is uh, 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 not that different, I don't think, from anyone here, their day. Today, as an example, after getting up and having breakfast and coffee and doing some exercises, uh, Patty and I took a ride and we stopped and took a, about a 30 minute walk at a park and took a ride and I got lost, so we didn't get home for about two or three hours. But so our, our days are filled, if you will, uh, not just with doing things like the PF Warriors, which takes a lot of my, my time personally, but in COVID and trying to inspire our patient community uh, in addressing not just the physical, but the mental side of it. You know, people don't really talk about that mental piece. It's, it's frightening if you're a patient COPD, asthma, lung cancer, pulmonary fibrosis, interstitial lung disease. If you're a patient, COVID for us as a community is, is just hyper-focused because most people or our kids will bounce. We don't bounce, we go boom, because it's a terrible, terrible lung disease typically, and we're all living with a terrible, terrible lung disease to start with. So I think what we've done here, not just in Dallas, Texas, Russell, but our community across the board elsewhere, and people that I talk to in other countries, it's the same thing. We're trying to protect ourselves the best we can. We understand the, the, uh, the ability to treat and cure is limited, if not, not there, period. There's a lot of hope on the horizon. We all watch for it. We look for it. But right now, it's, it's the mantra of stay isolated. Don't interact unless you have to interact. Wash your hands a lot. Uh, keep away from those that seem to be sick in any way, shape, or form, and, uh, and live the best you can while this is going on.
Yeah, that's that's really well put, um, Bill, because I guess that's advice that we can all take away from this, and I'm sure we're all practising those those same things. Mary, in, in your community and for your disease, how does uh, COVID-19 affect you? Well, you know, we certainly have uh, similar concerns. Uh, most of us have, um, you know, some, some depressed lung function. And, you know, the ages really vary. Since this is a genetic disease, you know, children have um, loss of lung function as a result. So even though, you know, in the news they're saying children aren't as hard hit, you know, it's certainly, um, if you have PCD or, you know, it's similar to cystic fibrosis. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're staying inside. Uh, one of the great things the PCD foundation has done is, uh, they've been having a PCD doctor. So <coughs> that work at approved PCD centers and they've been doing a uh, one hour town hall on Mondays in April. And that's allowed patients and parents to ask questions. Um, because we're such a small disease group, you know, there's certainly no evidence of, um, you know, how somebody with PCD would fare. And um, one person did state that they had tested positive for it and um, did not have um, any, com you know, complicating symptoms from it. And I think this is somebody who was younger. But again, um, in our disease group, it's it's almost like the more we're learning about it, the more we, we realize the more we don't know. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many genetic variations, we don't know if, you know, the particular genetic variation somebody has, you know, would, would make things better or worse for them as a result. So, so yeah, so people are, um, Staying in, uh, we're definitely recommending doing telemed if possible. And um, I'm going to be talking uh, this coming Wednesday with my transplant team uh, via telemed. So that'll be my first telemed appointment um, as a pre-transplant patient. And um, yeah, so just doing what you can avoid do to avoid getting sick avoid having to, you know, just go into the hospitals because they don't seem like a very safe place these days. You know, particularly for, for those of us who are already compromised. Yeah, and a, a good point you raised there, Mary, is that uh, your disease has so little research and, and we know so little about it at, at this stage, I guess. You know, there's no specific guidelines for you except for keeping yourself as safe as possible and adhering to what the rest of us in the lung community are, are trying to do. You know, stay isolated and avoid sick people and, and good hygiene. You know, it's yeah. the three things we can do to keep ourselves safe, that's for sure. Yeah. John, I'm sure you're going to have some input about COVID-19 and, and COPD. So how has it affected you and the way you do things, or is it business as usual for you? Well, thank you, Russ. I, it's certainly not 
business as usual. I, I've been staying at home. In, in fact, before the crisis really broke here, when it was just becoming a thing, I had my routine annual well visit with my doctor. And the first question he asked me was other than how are you feeling was, are you prepared for COVID? And I said, well, I've, I've heard about it. I'm somewhat prepared. What, what, what do you mean? And why are we starting our visit this way? He said, well, we're in a rural community. We're a small town, but you need to know that it will come here. It is coming here and you need to be prepared. And since you're lung compromised, I want you to be aware that there are things you need to do. And I mean, at that time, that surprised me that he was that concerned. Nationally, now I understand why he said that. And I think he was very intuitive and very smart in, in, in saying those words. I do live in a rural community. I live in a farming community. Our town has 4,300 uh, residents. And we had our first diagnosed case yesterday, which sounds, well, gosh, I mean, New York has had, what, 50, 60, 70,000 cases, and we've only had one. But the fact that it's hit here is surprising. It will come here. It has come here. And it's going to grow. So your question to me was, how have I prepared? What have I done? How do we react? I, I'm aware of it. So I took it seriously. But I'm afraid that the general population hasn't. And many are going about business as normal. I've been out twice in the past month as a consumer. And I've seen very few people wearing masks. And what scares me is the fact that be, because it has not hit here, people think it won't come here. And that's why they don't wear masks. Does it really require multiple, multiple deaths for people to take it seriously? That's scary. That's really very, very scary. And I'm, I'm just afraid that in rural communities, which I represent, because everyone else I believe lives in uh, metropolitan areas, I, I think the rural communities are about to be awakened and realize that, yeah, it does hit home. It, it's going to hit here. And that's very scary. Yeah, no, that that's well put, John. It is very scary. And part of the conversations I've had with people who feel that they're not at risk or it's just a flu is regardless of what you think of it, the fact of the matter is if you get this, this virus and you pass it out on to someone who is at risk, do you want to be responsible for their death? 
And that's what people have got to look at. It's not just how it affects the individual, it's how the flow-on effect happens. So, you know, I know my children in particular, the last thing they would want is to infect me. Um, so they're the things we've, we've, we've got to keep in mind. And unfortunately, you know, in our country too, some people still don't take this seriously, even though they see what's happening all over the world. I'll go to you, Carol. Uh, how has COVID affected you in the UK? Um, well, the figures are quite scary at the moment, and we seem to be on a bit of a plateau. We're not going up drastically, but we're not going down either. Um, I was aware of COVID the back end of January, really, but that was because of some of the circles that I was moving in. I mean, we. In January, we had two patients um, in hospital in London, and I was sat there in a in a meeting with the guy that was treating them. Um, and I was going back and forwards to London, um, and then all of a sudden, I got a phone call from the um, British Lung Foundation, um, cancelling a couple of my appointments because they said this is getting really serious, Carol and you need to be self-isolating now. So I've actually been self-isolating for uh, eight weeks. Um, six weeks officially uh, here in the UK, they started shielding people who had severe COPD, uh, severe asthma, cystic fibrosis, any, any lung condition um, that needed any form of steroid treatment or you'd had an exacerbation antibiotics or steroids in the last year. Um, we've all been told that we have to self-isolate even from family members within the home for a minimum of 12 weeks. Um, so obviously the terrorist situation, uh, we haven't got separate bathroom or anything. So he's been um, completely uh, within the house as well. So we don't go out at all, Russell. Terry's had to go for one doctor's appointment. Um, and before he came in the house, he took his shoes off, wiped them all down with bleach, straight up to a shower, hair wash, clothes straight in the washing machine without me touching anything. Any food that comes into the house, which is all just left on the doorstep, has to be wiped down with um, bleach water um, and everything. And that's the state of play here in the UK for anybody with a severe lung condition. It certainly has impacted you guys over there. I've been watching the numbers there and also in the US and it's it's very different to what it here is here in Australia. Fortunately, we seem to have reached the point where we've, what they say, flattened the, the curve. I know in my own state, Queensland, we've now had three days this week where we've had zero new cases, which is really good. And I think nationally yesterday we had something like 13 new cases. So we seem to have hit our peak, hopefully. But there still is a big concern about a second wave. So we have restrictions in place here. The majority of people are abiding by and we're told that if everything keeps going the way it is, then perhaps by the end of May, we will see some restrictions lift, um, but, but not a lot. So, you know, it, it's hard for everyone, I think. 
Uh, Karen, how's, um, how's things in sunny Florida for, for you and how's COVID affecting you? Well, I almost hate to tell people I live in Florida because our governor, <laughs> I'm sorry, he's just not doing what he should be doing, in, in my opinion. Um, yes, he's encouraged people to stay home. He's kind of closed the state, but he didn't close the beaches. <sighs> Every single town or city made their own decision. And so you may have seen the photographs, the videos of people flocking back to the beaches. Um, I, I think it's crazy. I love the beach. I live eight miles away from, from the Atlantic. I would be there in a heartbeat, you know, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to dare to do it. I get my groceries delivered by a, a delivery service. Yes, it costs a little bit, but it keeps me out of the store. Um, somebody said something that I, I wanted. I, I yeah, My brain is fried with this. Um, oh, some of you were on earlier when I said that my, my nephew is now diagnosed with COVID-19. He's a nurse in a hospital in Philadelphia. He's uh, quarantined right now at home with his family. He's in their master bedroom with a private bath. My niece has moved out of the bedroom. But I found out yesterday that he did not have an oximeter. And one of the things that we're learning is that by the time someone with, with COVID-19 begins to feel short of breath, their oxygen saturation has dropped tremendously. They don't feel it the way most of us would. So he didn't have one. So today was the first time I went out in a long time. My, my sister was trying to find one and mail it to him. They're all sold out, even online. I realized I had two oximeters. So I boxed the extra one up with a couple of batteries. I went to the post office. You know, I, I had sanitizing wipes, I had gloves, I had a mask. You know, I did all of that to protect me, but I wanted him to get the oximeter because he needs to keep track of his, his um, oxygen saturation. Just because he doesn't feel short of breath doesn't have any meaning with, they're calling it a silent pneumonia. And they're saying by the time that people are short of breath, they're in, in, in the ICU or they're in, you know, they're, they're, they're being intubated and on a ventilator. So I got that sent off as quickly as I could today. And I just made it back in time. I had talked to John and said, I might not be back in time for this Zoom talk, but I just made it back in time. But uh, a friend of mine is having a birthday tomorrow. Some of the friends wanted to do a little birthday party, sit out on her screened-in porch, six feet apart, you know, mask, yada, yada, yada. We decided, no, it is way too dangerous. We're not going to do it. We'll, we'll give her a party later. So, you know, and, and the people, I, I live in a 55-plus retirement community. So most of us are in the at-risk group anyway, whether you have an underlying comorbidity or not. Um, and everybody here has been remarkably 
well behaved. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're following the guidelines. I have a golf cart. I go out on my golf cart late afternoons. I just ride around the community. It takes me about an hour. There's about 600 homes. And if somebody's out, I'll stop, but I don't get off my golf cart. You know, we still stay quite a bit apart, but you know, you are able to see people and say, how are you doing? Are you okay? But it's certainly a different life and just please keep my nephew in your thoughts and prayers. And, and I know Bill said that his, your daughter, is it your daughter, Bill? That's my a granddaughter. Nurse. Yes. Granddaughter's a nurse. Yeah. We owe so much to the nurses, the doctors, the EMTs. We owe so much to them. They're, they're really putting their lives on the line for us. So I don't know if that answered your question, Russell. Well, it, it does, Karen, because the thing is, we're all representative of our, of our disease and our community, and it's, it's interesting to know what's going on. Now, I don't want to take up too much of everyone's time, so... Uh, open mic now so everyone can chime in and I just wanted to get a little bit of time of discussion about some final thoughts about this disease or any questions you have for each other about what you've heard so it's open to anyone who's who's got a comment you know one of the things I would just like to say you know you're asking you asked what each of us is doing to keep ourselves safe and you know one of the things you know, I think a lot of people don't get that are healthy is how dangerous their transmitting this virus can be. You know, that you know, they don't know what people might have a dangerous comorbidity. And, you know, age is certainly as we're older, um, you know, the rate of um, death goes up. And so, you know, I, a lot of people don't get that the reason that these measures have been put into place is it's to protect all of us, but it's to protect the more vulnerable. I did an ALA. I'm sorry, I have to leave here in a second. I apologize, which Russell's aware of. Uh, and I, Mary, you said something that I agree with, and Karen, I think you all have said it. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a terrible, awful, nasty, nasty disease. And not to be political, because I'm not, I'm really not political, but I think our governments collectively, I don't care if you're in Australia or England, United States, in Texas or Dallas uh, or Florida, I, I don't care. I think the leadership has been lacking in our, our public officials yep. on this disease. And it's yes. been, to yeah. me, an angering process for me. I First, I kind of laughed at the naivety of what they were saying. Now I get angry because it gets me angry what they're saying collectively. And I'm not talking about Republicans, Democrats. I'm talking about our leadership in general. We have cities in Dallas, Texas that are opening up the front door for commerce because their citizens are pushing them for that. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy for us. It's really crazy for the average citizen in the street. We have done a poor job as a community impacting our officials to get the word out that this is not the flu. It's much, much, much more and much worse. We have not done a good job on, on raising the awareness of lung disease, the third killer in the world. 
you, know, you take heart disease, cancer, and lung disease, we're top three, and that's not a top three place you want to be. I don't think that there's things that have been done we can be done. Russell, I hope you can bring together the leadership needed to marshal some of this that has to take place. This is a great step in it. We try to do it at the ground, at the, at the street level, but it's going to take not just pushing upward, but pulling upward as well. And I haven't seen that happen, and I find it personally very frustrating. Yeah, look, Bill, I would totally agree with you. And I, I asked you all, and you can just nod, how impactful would it be if all of our leaders, when they were giving their press conference, were wearing a mask? <laughs> I think that would be I think that would be wonderful. That'll never happen in the US with our current president. I'm very sorry. Well, let me they, just... They're not recommending it in the UK. They're not they're saying that we don't need to wear masks. Oh but my. Yeah. Hey, Doesn't it make you angry when you see that? You know, it, it makes me angry. I used to laugh at it. I thought, what idiots. Now their idiocy, idiocracy is going to, it's going to, it can kill me and my friends. I, I lose friends every day from this disease by itself. I don't need help. And, and I, I think the other thing that we're not hearing as much about is, so if you, if someone's younger and healthier, but they get this and they have some symptoms, they're finding that they're getting lung damage as a result. Yes. And, you know, some, some of the descriptions sound maybe like bronchiectasis. And, you know, if, if that's the future that a presumably current healthy person is walking into, um, I mean, that's awful. This is what we've said. This is what we've said with the task force here in the UK. Lung disease has been so underrepresented anyway but we're going to be needed so much more in the future to raise awareness um, and especially to deal with all the after effects of this if and when it's finally over. Yeah. But it, it, it's almost, it, it, it's almost, I don't know what the right word is, but we all, we all know the repercussions about being careful or, or not being careful. And what, what, what Bill said earlier about our politicians and, and not following common sense, for heaven's sakes. We, we all know what needs to be done because we have lung issues. Yeah. And what about those that don't? Because what we do, all of our foundations, all of the, 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 the efforts that we support deal with education and awareness. We have the awareness. And those that don't have our diseases, our conditions, don't have the awareness, and that becomes a problem. And that's maybe why they're all out there saying, reopen the economy. We need to go back to work. We don't need to wear masks. Yet we understand the danger because they don't understand. They don't have the awareness, the education. They don't understand the whys and where nots as to why it's so necessary to take those precautions. Absolutely. I think I think Bill's got to leave us and, and has left us because he's got a, a prior engagement. So Bill, thank you for your time today. 
Is there anyone else who, who wants to offer anything as far as COVID-19 discussions and, and what we can advise other patients? I think we just need to... We, I mean, we all are used to taking precautions against flu. Um, so this is an extension of that. We've just got to be super extra, extra careful, uh, sanitizer, hand washing, everything. It's just absolutely vital. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've got so used to not touching my mouth, my eyes, my nose in flu season. We've just got to do that the whole time. Yeah, and and you're so right. I think I think if we practice what we know, and we we spread that education to the people in our community, not only in our disease community, but friends, family, and hopefully that message will spread, and at some stage we can see an end to this and and I don't know whether we'll go back to normality as we're used to, but maybe a normality that we can live with is, is what we're aiming for. Amen to that. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all today for taking time out. It's really appreciated. I think what you've all said is very impactful and insightful and and hopefully it will give some comfort to patients in our disease community so thank you all thank you thank you russell and russell thank you for everything that that you do for the lung community it was a pleasure being invited